was wanting to see what Peter looked like. I like this. Now when we get to heaven, we'll be able to say, you're Philip, you're Nathaniel. <laughs> Here's Peter. This is a great picture. Okay, the disciples had to grow in their understanding of who God was, so I've got some more real letters from children who need to grow in their understanding of who God is. Nan writes, Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. Ruth M. writes, Dear God, I think the stapler is one of your greatest inventions. (laughs) Jennifer says, In Bible times, do they really talk that fancy? (laughs) Dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? (laughs) From Neil. Mark says, I keep waiting for spring, but it never come yet. Don't forget. Dean says, you don't have to worry about me. I always look both ways. Norma says, dear God, did you mean for a giraffe to look like that, or was it an accident? (laughs) Lucy says, dear God, are you really invisible, or is that just a trick? And then Joyce says, thank you, God, for my baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) We all have to grow in understanding who God is. When I was about 20 years old, I got to go to Windy Gap. Have any of you been to Young Life's Windy Gap in North Carolina? See, some of you have. It was so fun. And I was a counselor. And when you're a counselor, they have these training sessions. And you come in a room. And so the head of the camp kind of trains the counselors a little bit. And he said, how do we know the resurrection really took place. So, you know, I kind of thought a while, and everybody started thinking, we started throwing out little ideas, and he would just shoot those arguments down like that. And then I was starting to get nervous, thinking, how do we know? Everything we say, he had an answer for. And finally he said this, the way we know the resurrection is true is that 11 Ordinary men became extraordinary all at the same time. And that is true. They adored Jesus, but they ran from him. They were afraid. They were despairing. They were the same men that established the church. They were the same men that died the deaths of martyrs for this very man that they were so confused about. What changed? What changed was they got to smell, to touch, to hear, and to talk to their friend and teacher, Jesus Christ, victorious from the tomb, risen from the dead. And because of that, These ordinary men became extraordinary. And that is true for us. If you know Christ, you are not ordinary. There is no such thing as an ordinary Christian. In the hands of a risen Lord, we get to be extraordinary. 
We get to be used by the living God. What a privilege. They were cowards, they became courageous. They were timid, they became bold. They were unsure, they became convicted. They were uncommitted, they became committed. They were powerless, and they became powerful. This is promises for us as well as we walk with Christ. Like all the disciples, Peter's personality was unique, and he was uniquely used. And my hope is that we can all find places where we can relate to Peter so we can be encouraged, so we can think, man, I mess up here too, but look how God changes us and grows us and uses us for kingdom work. And I'm really excited. I got Peter. I felt sorry for Shelly and Deb (laughs) because... I got this guy who has all this wonderful stories written about, and I hope you enjoyed reading them. I just wanted you to kind of come away with a real feel for Peter's personality. I like thinking about Peter a lot. Um, When I was growing up, maybe some of you used to do this, if I wanted to do something that my mom was not happy about, I would sometimes make the mistake of saying, but everyone is doing it. Now, that's not a good thing to say. You've probably learned that as well. And my mom's answer would always be, if everyone jumped off a cliff, would you? And I would just kind of walk away, but (laughs) truthfully, I'd be thinking, maybe. (laughs) Maybe I would. I think Peter was the kind of guy, if he jumped off a cliff, a whole lot of people would jump off with him. He was a leader. In fact, there's a story where some of the disciples and Peter are restless. They've seen the risen Christ, but he hasn't come around for a few days. And they're standing around with nothing to do. And then Peter says, I'm going fishing. What do all the disciples say? We are going fishing. He was a leader. On your outline, his name is always mentioned first when there is a list that refers to the disciples. He's very often the spokesman for the rest of the disciples. He was part of the inner circle with Peter, James, and John, and Shelley got to talk about them, the sons of thunder. The risen Christ's third appearance was to Peter alone. Can you imagine that privilege? To Peter alone, Jesus comes. And from all the homework that you read, we see that the words and the actions of Peter are those of a leader. I was thinking about Peter a lot this summer, and I got to visit my parents in Michigan. They have a little lake house on a little lake, and I was sitting on the end of this dock. This lake is called Island Lake because there's a little island out in the center of it. And uh, I'm on the end of my parents' little dock, And I'm listening to these two teenage boys goofing around on the island. Because you know how lake, how the sound carries. So it's kind of fun to hear them hooping and hollering. Well, then they get in their canoe to go back to the shore. Now, this was funny because it was so hard for me not to stand up and yell at them. But they get in their canoe and they get their oars, each of the boys, and they go on one side. (laughs) And then they go, switch! switch never did they figure out hey 
we put one oar in this side, one oar, we might go straight. Never did they figure it out. So I'm on the end of the dock, and, and here's them. They go. It took them twice as long to get to the other side of the shore. I don't know why they never figured it out. They needed a Peter. Peter is the kind of guy who would get people going the right direction to get there quicker. God would use him to be a guide in the early church. And I love it that Peter was passionate. On your outline, he had great emotional highs, great emotional lows. He felt things very deeply. He was often ruled by his heart. He was impulsive. You probably picked up on that in the homework. He often spoke before thinking. He often acted before thinking. And I thought of some of those examples. When Jesus is telling them how he has to suffer, Peter's passionate answer is, never. When Jesus is trying to wash his feet at the Last Supper, Peter's passionate response, never. Jesus says, then you can't have any part of me. Wash all of me. When Peter sees Jesus walking on the water, he wants to jump out of the boat and get out there with him. When they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was Peter who just takes the sword out and chops off a slave's ear. When Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, he wept bitterly, feeling deeply that pain. When he heard his tomb was empty, he ran with all his might, and he was probably older than John, who ran along with him. John stopped outside the tomb. Who just kept going? Peter, and he didn't stop till he stood right next to the folded linen clothes that his friend Jesus had been wearing. Days later, when he realized Jesus was standing on the shore while Peter was fishing, he dives into the Sea of Galilee because he cannot wait to get to him. He's so passionate. And he's with Jesus just a few minutes, and he goes from a big high to a big low when Jesus has to ask him three times, Peter, do you really love me? To be a passionate leader is a wonderful thing. But to be a passionate leader apart from Jesus Christ can be a very dangerous thing. David Koresh was a passionate leader. Osama bin Laden is a passionate leader. Even Oprah Winfrey is a passionate leader. She has the ability to lead people to good or to lead people away from truth. But if you have a passionate leader that's in love with Jesus, if you have a passionate leader whose passions are bridled and directed by the Holy Spirit, then you really have something. That was Jesus' plan all along, to take those rough edges that we've read about Peter and smooth them and build him into a rock. A passionate leader in love with Jesus.
can become a rock for the purposes of God. Look on your verse sheet at John 1.42. This is when Peter first meets Jesus. Andrew was Peter's brother, and Deb taught us how he was always bringing people to Jesus, which I love, and here's another example. So he brings Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Circle that word looked. I just love to envision what those kind of moments are like. We know Jesus already knew Peter. But this is the first time in the flesh Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. And when in that word looked, we realize Jesus knew the character of Peter and Jesus knew the destiny of Peter. And so he changes his name to point forward to that destiny. He changes his name to Peter, which means rock, actually can mean rock man, because that is what Peter would be for Jesus. His strengths and his weaknesses would be tempered by the work of the Holy Spirit, and he would become a rock man. On your outline, a passionate leader who is controlled by the Spirit of God can be a rock for his church. I thought about this church. We've got so many passionate leaders, but you know what's true about a passionate leader who's bridled by the Spirit? They don't have to be in the spotlight. You can be a leader and be in the background. You can be passionate about your faith. I thought about Clyde Crawford because he's just stepping down from the elder board. And I wish you all could know it. Because he is a passionate leader. To be in the position he was in and then say, hey, when's kids camp so I can come? In fact, we needed a voice of an older man for a taping in kids camp. And he signed up and went down to the recording studio. And that voice you heard in that kids camp drama was Clyde Crawford, the head of the elder boards. He calls up Sally Klingman and says, when can I come downtown and see what God's doing in your ministry to the women that work downtown? He'll show up at things you would never even expect him to show up. He is a passionate leader. And I'll have to say this, because of Clyde, the church was kept from doing this. He kept us on a steady forward course without having to be in the spotlight about it. I want us to look at Matthew 16 and see a confession that Peter made. I know you've already read this. Okay, I have to tell you this. The hairspray I've used forever, they've changed the formula. I am going crazy up here. If anyone has a clip, you can give me one. But anyway, so ignore my pushing my hair back. I told Ted, it just doesn't work anymore. We need a new hairspray. Okay. (laughs) Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. What about you, he said? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a wonderful passage. This is a confusing passage. I think it's an important passage, so I want us to go through it real quickly. First, we have to remember, at this point, there is no church. The church does not exist. That's about to come when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost after Christ ascends. So this is a unique moment in history, the building of the early church. And because of that, the disciples, the apostles, they would be used in a very unique way. There are some that believe in this passage. It teaches that the church is built on the person of Peter and that he is given the right to forgive sins and control entrance to heaven, making him the very first bishop. And if that's the case, then that will be that authority to forgive sins will be passed on to one individual from generation to generation. And here's what I want to say about that. First of all, it doesn't agree with other scriptures. We know that God alone can forgive sins. Look at Hebrews 10 on your sheet. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. 1 John 1.9 tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Secondly, this passage says nothing about there being successors after Peter. Even if we would say, okay, Peter built the church, it's built on Peter... Where does it say there's going to be that individual from then on out until all eternity? Thirdly, which is really important, Jesus uses two different words for rock here. So you might put this in your margin. When he says, you are Peter, the word is Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, and it is a name meaning rock. And then he says, and upon this rock, I will build my church. This rock, circle, is Petra, P-E-T-R-A, a feminine form. It is no longer a name. And so it isn't the person of Peter that the church will be built on. It's the confession. It's the confession of Peter that he just made explaining the reality of the new church to be based on faith in Jesus Christ. The rock on which the church is to be built was a man confessing, not a man apart from the confession, 
and not a confession apart from the man. And there's a couple ways to understand this. First, Jesus is building the church on himself. Peter's confession was that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the word Christ is equivalent to the word Messiah in the Old Testament. And they both mean anointed one. Peter is saying all the promises, all the promises God gave this Jewish nation have been met through Jesus Christ. You are the Christ. And then he says you are the Son of of the living God, Peter is saying, you are deity. You are more than a man. You are more than a man come to redeem Israel. You are God in the flesh. Isaiah said that when he said, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Peter is claiming that Jesus is that man. Jesus is that God. Look at 1 Corinthians 3. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. And secondly, we can look at this talk about the church that Jesus has found in the beliefs of Peter and the apostles the foundation stones for his church. Look at Ephesians 2. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Both of these views agree that the person, that the church is built on the reality of the person of Christ and who he is. Now, up to this time in history, to kind of cover the rest of the verses, the rabbis held the keys of authority to the kingdom of God according to how they interpreted the law and their traditions. So they could say, "Hmm, you're doing well according to this. You're okay with God. You, You forgot to do this the other day. They had those keys of authority that they claimed would tell people if they were right in the eyes of God. In these passages, Peter is saying, Jesus is saying, that is called binding and loosing. And guess what? You guys have it now. You guys have the key because you know the truth. Salvation comes through me alone. So you now have the authority to go out and in your witnessing and in your preaching, you are making access to that kingdom available to all people, all kinds, all nations. This was a revolutionary truth. They carry the keys to the kingdom, the knowledge of who Jesus really is. When did Peter first use that key? We're going to look at it later on, right after Pentecost. He comes out, he sees a group of people, he gives them a sermon, and 3,000 people enter the kingdom of God. The church of Jesus Christ is born. Later on, he's got that key. God sends him to a Gentile's house named Cornelius. Cornelius 
and his Gentile family and friends come to know who Jesus is, Peter was holding the key of the access of relationship with God, and that was through Jesus Christ. And then this verse tells us, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. When they used in the times back then the term gates of Hades, they were talking about death. I think Jesus is saying here, even the gates of Hades, when I die, they cannot stop the work that I am going to be doing in the church. Nothing can stop me. Remember that at my death. I am still alive and I will build the church. The confession that Peter made about the identity of Jesus is the true foundation of every true church today. 2,000 years later, including the church where you're sitting in the pew right now, it is based on the confession that Peter made back then. Before the church, though, could be established, Jesus knew, I have some work to do. I have some things to teach these disciples. I have some things I want to train them in. In fact, look back in Matthew 16. Look at verse 21. I mean, Jesus has just told Peter, you are blessed. God's revealed this to you, and he affirms him. Look what happens really soon afterwards. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter takes him aside and rebukes Jesus. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine that? He's been encouraged and affirmed, and Jesus says, Get behind me. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not concerned about my things. You are concerned about yours. Oops. Peter needs to be chiseled a little bit. He didn't want to see Jesus suffer, but it is true. He wanted his desire and not Jesus' desire. I read an amazing story about a three-year-old boy who was very ill and he had to have a spinal tap. And um, I hear those are horrible and painful, and for a three-year-old to go through that, I can't imagine. But the mom was really great, and she really explained it well. And she said, in order to get better, you have to hurt first. And she said, now, the doctor loves you, but he's going to hurt you so that you will get better. And I guess it was a horrible time. They needed three nurses to hold him. He cried and sobbed and yelled. And then when it was all over, he kind of mustered up his courage and went to the doctor and said, thank you for my hurt. Peter was going to hurt. But Peter, we look when we read later in in his epistles, he was grateful because God was chiseling him into a rock man. And God used him to help establish his church. On your outline, a passionate leader chiseled by the grace of God becomes a rock of faith. I want to look at one story where Jesus is doing just that. 
Last week, Deb mentioned about the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, Jesus goes to Philip and says, hey, where should we get bread for these people? And Philip, the correct answer would have been, from you. You're the provider. You can do anything. But instead, Philip immediately calculates how much money it would cost, and then it becomes an impossibility. A training time. So Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, gives it to the disciples to pass out among the people. And to their shock and amazement, these little loaves and fish feed over 5,000 people, probably closer to 10,000, because 5,000 are only the men. Can you imagine feeding and doing that? And when it's done, they come back, and there's 12 baskets left over. Jesus is trying to say, Hey, guys, I'm your provider. I am sufficient. I will take care of you. And one day... I will be gone, and you will be doing this. You will be feeding my sheep, and you have to remember, I can provide more than enough. So they have this amazing miracle happen, and it's so amazing. It's the only miracle recorded in every single one of the Gospels. They go out, and then Jesus decides to send them out across the Sea of Galilee in their boat, and he stays behind. Turn to Matthew 14. Immediately, verse 22, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., these guys are in a boat in a storm with the winds. They've rowed out maybe three miles into the Sea of Galilee. The waves are fierce. And I thought, sometimes we're in a storm caused by others. Sometimes we're in a storm caused by our sins. Sometimes we're in a storm orchestrated by our God for our good. And this was one of those storms. It was Jesus who pushed the boat out into the storm, into the dark, so that they could learn something, so that they would grow in their faith. That is how God uses trials in our lives. He disciplines us. He tests us. He grows us. And George Mueller has this great thing to say about it. He says, God delights to increase the faith of his children. And I say it deliberately, trials, difficulties, and sometimes defeat are the very food of faith. And it's so hard for us to remember that. When we are in the midst of darkness, we begin to believe that we are alone. I read about a little boy, and the house was on fire, and the dad got outside, and the little boy was up on the roof, and the dad's yelling, jump, jump, 
my arms are out, chomp, and the little boy wouldn't do it. And he finally yelled down, you know, he's just looking at smoke and darkness. He said, but I can't see you, Daddy. And the dad said, but I can see you, and that is enough. When we think we're alone, we are not alone. Jesus has to teach his disciples because he's about to go to heaven and be back with his father. He has to teach them, when you don't see me visibly, I am with you. You will never be alone. And so out they go into that storm by themselves. In that story, we realize Jesus is on the shore praying, watching, totally aware of what's happening with his disciples. So now he comes to them. Look at verse 25. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Jesus is always coming to us. We're in a storm. It's dark. We think we're alone. Jesus is always coming to us. Jesus came to you one day when you were in the middle of darkness and called your name and your faith was born when you finally looked up and saw him. Now, he might have looked like a ghost. He might have not been very clear to you, but it's because he came to you that you looked up and had a faith born inside of you. And your faith has grown because Jesus is always coming to you. He will never stop coming to you. Even when the days are dark, even when we do stupid things, even in our ignorance, even in our sins, Jesus will always be praying and watching and coming alongside of us. Faith is evoked, faith is born by the personal revelation of the Lord to our soul. Look at 2 Timothy. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. If he's called us for his own purposes to a holy life, if he initiated that relationship, will he ever just abandon us? The disciples needed to understand this. They don't recognize Jesus, though, when he comes to them. They think he's a ghost, and that word really means water phantom. I don't know if water phantoms were something that happened back then. And I thought, you know, it isn't easy to recognize Jesus when we're trying to get through the storm by ourselves. That's exactly what they were doing. The ancient Egyptians had a symbol. I thought this was so interesting to represent the idea of impossibility. And guess what the symbol was? Two feet planted on the ocean. Jesus says, hey, you know that idea of impossibility? Look at me. Nothing's impossible with me. I fed 5,000 people. I'm walking over these waves. I have power over the sea and the storms. Don't be afraid. Why 
are you afraid? An African impala can jump 10 feet high. They can even jump almost 30 feet long. But if you go to a zoo and you want to look at the impalas, most of them are in a cage that's only three feet high because the impala won't jump anywhere where he can't see his feet will land. Faith is trusting what we cannot see. And when we choose to hold back, it's like we have these little walls, three-foot walls of fear that keep us entrapped from going to Christ, from seeing him when he's there, when we are focused on those fears. Faith is trusting, even when we can't see him, that he is there and that he cares. Look at verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Faith is exercised when our soul responds to the Lord who has initiated a relationship with us. Peter responds to the presence of Jesus and wants to get out of the boat. He wants to walk through the storm with Jesus. Now, we see faith here, but we see a young faith because Jesus says, it's I, don't be afraid. And Peter's answer is, if it's you, it's I, if it's you, I need a little bit greater assurance Then ask me to come out. I think I've read lots of things about why he stepped out of the boat. Some are real negative. He was just showing off. He just wanted to experience a new adventure. Lots of reasons. Who knows all our motives, but it took faith to get out of the boat. Where are the rest of the disciples? In the boat. We like to make fun of Peter. You had little faith. They didn't even try to get out of the boat. Peter puts his feet over. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in rough waters at night. That is scary. That is a scary thought. Peter had enough faith to think, I'm tired of this storm. I'm going to come alongside Jesus. It's going to get better. Let me out. As long as he came toward Jesus, that passage tells us he was doing okay. But just like us, he began to say, whoa, that wave was big. Wow, this wind is about to knock me over. Whoa. And slowly, Peter began to sink. He began to notice the storm more than he noticed Jesus. Look at Matthew 14.30. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Our faith is weakened when our soul focuses on our circumstances. We all love that song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I rewrote it. Turn your eyes upon circumstances. Let them rule and become your king. And the things of Christ will grow strangely dim in the darkness and fear they will bring. 
Christ to look more and more ghost-like the more we look at our circumstances. He becomes small when our circumstances are big. Peter's thinking he's about to drown. What do we do when we think we're about to drown? What do we do in those kind of trials? Here's what we have to do. We have to look deep in the face of Jesus and remember who he is. Remember who he is. Look at Psalm 27. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way, he leads the humble in justice, he teaches the humble his way. My eyes are continually on the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. I don't know if you guys were here a few weeks ago. The best example of someone who does this that I know is LaMonica. And uh, she was the woman in the back in a wheelchair. If you and I made a list of her circumstances, being burned in a horrible car wreck, losing her legs, being confined to a wheelchair, having sickle cell anemia, being scarred, we would all say, hey, that is the worst storm I've ever heard of. And she looks deep in the face of Jesus and sees he is good. He is just. And her circumstances are what dims and fades around her. She is a woman of incredible faith. Peter does a wonderful thing now. Look at verse 30. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus did the right thing there. He lost his faith, but when our faith's weak, what do we do? Jesus, save me. Jesus, help me. And the Bible tells us immediately, Jesus puts his arm out. He is waiting to do that. Hebrews 10.23 tells us, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I read about um, Hudson Taylor, the missionary in China. On a boat, the wind is gone. The captain says, Sir, we are slowly drifting onto this island of heathens, and they're cannibals. You better pray. I hear you're a Christian. Hudson Taylor says, Put your sails up. He cries out to God. The wind comes. The guy says, quit praying. We have more of the wind than we know what to do with. But sometimes we pray for the wind to stop, and it doesn't. Sometimes we pray for a relationship to be healed, and it doesn't. Sometimes we pray for health, and it's not coming. What do we do then? We cry out to Jesus. We clutch the arm of Jesus. We hold fast because he's the confession of our hope and he will be faithful. It says so in that Hebrews verse. And we wait, looking deep in the face of Jesus who loves us. I love this quote by J. Oswald Sanders. He says, Faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means when I'm visibly delivered or not, I will always believe that God is love. 
there are some things we learn only in a fiery furnace. Faith is renewed by the merciful actions of God. We saw here how Jesus immediately strengthened and comforted them. When he gets in the boat, the storm is calm. It's symbolic that wherever Jesus is, there is calm. Even in the midst of our storms, as long as we've let Jesus come in the boat, it's calm. Our inner hearts can be calm even when everything outside is not. Jesus is merciful. And the hands of a merciful God, our little faith, can be shaped into a rock. Listen what Peter said in his epistles later. The God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, he will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. This is a guy who was in the storms. This is a guy chiseled under the hand of God. This is who we can be when we keep our eyes on Jesus. Let me pray.